Welcome to Anatomy of a Leader podcast series, the second episode of Seven, co-hosted by board director Raquel Brigham Brown, based in Los Angeles, California, and behavioral psychology author Timothy Maurice Webster, who lives in Johannesburg, South Africa. Raquel and Timothy invite you into their boardroom dialogue to explore behavioral and neuroscience research and transformative leadership paradigms. In this episode, Raquel and Timothy explore human-centric leadership, power of the people, You'll be introduced to seven principles that are fundamental to achieve abundant business results, and you'll discover what it takes to lead with an abundance mindset, keeping people at the core in the boardroom. Humans have an almost innate capacity to dream, to think, and most importantly, to work in a collective, cohesive, effective manner to achieve incredible, abundant results. Today, we're going to unpack and explore human-centric leadership. Building your business on people. Hi, Timothy. Hi, Raquel. It's so good to be back in episode two. We are really making progress. I'm excited about today, and I really want to start in with the check-in. I think it's a fundamental principle of human-centric leadership. It just really gives a chance to get a pulse as we get started as to what's going on with us, how we're feeling, is what we plan to do, are we still able to do that today? Mentally, I'm feeling really good. We started this conversation to launch this podcast in the middle of a very difficult and complex period. We put our heads together, we jotted down what mattered to us, where real value lies, and we have gotten this far and we're in episode two And I feel really, really good about it. I feel very positive. And I know we're adding value. I too, Timothy, feel good about this time in which we've decided to add value and add our voice in a time when leadership clearly is needed. Six months ago, we could never have envisioned what happened. And now leading out of it is key. So I'm excited. I feel like this check-in process has really been an enabler. Um, to even you and I who are operating on different continents, but yet having the chance to check in as we get started. Appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to, I think one of the fundamental things we've talked about is our goal in this series is teaching leaders to unlearn so that they could relearn or learn a new way of leading, a new way of thinking about leadership. And I think this episode really is going to be a signature in our series. And uh, as we talked about, we think leadership really is the process of guiding people to a common goal. And this idea of building your business on people requires to unleash by releasing. And so it's really incumbent for the leader to inspire, to encourage, to influence, to educate. And that's really, for a lot of us, is not the way we learned about leadership. I think this is going to be one of my favorite, my personal favorite episodes, specifically because, you know, really getting to the heart of why leadership matters, getting to the core of leadership. At the end of the day, if you're on an island by yourself, Leadership does not matter, right? You're alone. Right, right. You know, right? So the whole purpose of us, you know, bringing people inside of the boardroom to have the series, to me, this becomes the heart of the series. 
I agree, Timothy. And I, I think that, you know, the beauty of the episode is that we're really going to begin to explore how to get enthusiasm for leadership as a way to getting results through investing in people and focusing on people. And that's really difficult because you think about leadership and you know it involves leading people, but your enthusiasm is easily waned because with people comes challenges. And if you think about what are what keeps leaders up at night, whether you're the chairman, whether you're the CEO, whether you're a salesperson, it's people, people and all the challenges and the idea that the business would be great if we didn't have the people. Right. Um, and so how do you give greater enthusiasm to leaders to do what only they can do? And so yeah. these seven principles of the human centric leadership were developed by me and my team over our many years of working with organizations. And what we really wanted to do was say, can we crystallize what are the seven fundamental things that if an organization and a leader puts in their business process, the results will be abundant. And so that's what this is about. And it's the idea that on matters of principles, you stand like a rock. On matters of practice, you can bend like a willow. In other words, how you execute in your unique environment can be situational, but it has to follow the principles. And the principles are multiplicative, meaning you need to have some portion of each of them in order to get the great the value. So if you do six principles, great. But one principle you don't do at all, you don't have human-centric leadership. You don't get the results that you could. You get better results. But you don't get the abundant results. Well, I'm looking forward to the seven principles. I have to share one story before we jump in. Great. My favorite leader of all time was a New Zealander. I was 28 years old, living my best life in New York. And <laughs> he he used many of these seven principles, and he married them and tied them to rugby. Because being from New Zealand, Mark was absolutely obsessed with the success of New Zealand. And he believed that it was largely because of many of these principles that we're going to share. And I knew nothing about rugby, but I fell in love with rugby because he and his leadership style inspired us to think about leadership very differently. I look forward to hearing you share more stories about Mark as we go through them, because it sounds sure. like Mark is the leader that we, in fact, are trying to aspire with our seven principles. And the first one is there's a possibility of abundance. And that one on its face sounds easy, but then you realize we live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world where we think there's winners and there's losers, there's zero sum. But the idea is there's enough for all of us. And if our mind can believe it, we can achieve it. And so it's really the belief in the unseen, the unrealized. And so I think about Amazon and Netflix and the leaders of those organizations as perfect examples. I mean, when you think about Jeff Bezos, he created an industry that didn't exist. He disrupted shopping. And no matter what people said to him, he continued to believe what others couldn't see. 
And he, I mean, it was many, many years before he made a profit, but he never wavered from his unrelenting belief that Amazon was going to be the way of the future or Netflix. I mean, who thought that Netflix could disrupt the brick and mortar stores that were distributing DVDs, home movies, or that Netflix now is in the streaming, in the television content business. And I recently heard the CEO speaking and he said, and he, he said, you know, people thought there's no way that Netflix and HBO can both thrive. And he said, I always believed that we could. The business model shows that HBO has not lost an appreciable share while Netflix continues to grow. And that's an example of when a leader sees the possibility of abundance. And so I think it's it's the fundamental underpinning of the human-centric leadership model. And, and I'm just wondering from a brain capacity standpoint, Timothy, how can we train our brain, which is more geared towards scarcity, to focus and be more driven towards abundance? What happens is in the brain, if you focus on the existing patterns, every single person right now listening has an existing network of patterns in their brain. You can add additional patterns to the brain to create more perspective, to create more opportunity, and the existing patterns can continue. So that's exactly what happened in, with Amazon and Netflix is that HBO continues. It's an existing pattern, but Netflix comes along and brings additional opportunities, additional channels, additional choices, and they can coexist. So I want everybody to be thinking about the, the, the simple idea that in your brain, you can add additional patterns to complement the current ones. All that you're doing is becoming more expansive. That's it. You're becoming more expansive and you are opening yourself up to more possibility. So how do we do that technically? Is there some way we, something we should think about or I, like how actually if I wanted to open those channels? Specifically, like we mentioned in the previous episode, in terms of boosting your brain and so forth, is becoming a bit of a designer, designing the additional patterns. So right now, what I'm seeing in my life, what I'm seeing in my leadership journey, what I'm seeing in my career are these existing patterns. So if you've got a leadership manual, write down a couple additional patterns and see the abundance, see the building, see the growth actually happening. Because that's physically what's happening in the brain is that you are creating additional networks, creating additional opportunities for synapses or the when two neurons fire, two information cells fire together, they create synaptic potential. When you create additional patterns in your brain, which is a specific leadership exercise or a specific opportunity that you, where you want to grow or you want to take your business, what you're doing is you're creating opportunities for patterns to connect, for information, for opportunities to fire inside of the brain. And that is building on this abundance sort of principle. To see it is the first thing. To see the actual expansiveness in the mind is the first thing. The second thing is to, and, and if you want to use this as a toolkit, then physically write down where you want that growth and see it as not compromising an existing pattern. And that's why sort of neuroscientists and behavioral scientists really believe that 
even having a vision board or an action board as it relates to your leadership strategy is very, very powerful because that's exactly what you're doing when you are sitting down with your executive team, when you're sitting down with your, you know, anyone on the board, basically you are creating a map and a vision, but you've got to be able to see it all come together in a very real way inside of your brain. That's very interesting. It ties very strongly with the second principle, which is there is power in integration. And so basically what you're saying is you have to see it and how it relates to things that already exist in your brain and then create the channel for this expansive new idea. And the integration of the two is everything is connected. You just got to be able to see and put it together. And I, I like the idea of the synapses because that is actually something in my human centric leadership model that I talk about a lot. And it is the brain synapses. And if you don't get them firing, it's difficult to see abundance. It's difficult to see how things are are integrated because again, as humans, we have a tendency to break things into pieces and to divide with the idea that if we can make things smaller, we can understand them better. Thus, we can Correct. manage them better. Thus, we can potentially control them better. But what ends up happening is it makes life really tiring and frustrating as a leader because you end up having too many things to do because they're so disconnected. And so I think about organizations, right? We divide them by their function, by what kind of products, geographical differences and divides, what's often called we work in silos, which is exactly the opposite of what you're suggesting we do to actually see bigger and more abundant. So I I appreciate that because it is definitely, we live more in a scarce world. I think of the phone, if you will. If you think back to BlackBerry, of which I was an early market adapter and quite fond of BlackBerry, I held on to it to the last minute. But you think about the iPhone, it had the same attributes as a BlackBerry. But what Apple seems to have been able to do in the leader, Steve Jobs, was figure out how to talk about it and think about it as an integrated device, right? So it had computer, it had music, has talking, text, internet, social media. And at every touch point, you realize you had the Apple experience. But it's again because there was this thought of abundance, this idea of integration. No matter where you touch Apple in the system, you realize you've been touched by Apple. Also, from your standpoint, I've been thinking about your idea of integrating your expertise around the brand with your expertise around the brain. And just how did you happen to be able to put those two together? For me, it was simple. I saw that the world was going in that direction. When it comes to the disciplines that I operate in, you know, neuroscience, neuromarketing, what these disciplines were saying was that every brand lives in a brain. Branding comes from the German word brandier, which means to burn an image. It was actually, it was was brandishing, burning an image into a cow Mm. to know whose cow it was. So that in my head, I know how to identify with the cow. Is it mine or is it my neighbor's cow? The more we start understanding how the brain works, 
through fMRI scanning and so forth, it became clear that brands and stories move people's brain. As technology continued to advance, the integrative idea of how the brain works then became even more fascinating. And that's what has driven me to really want to study more about the brain because you realize we're not either left brain or right brain. They influence each other. We're not the prefrontal cortex or the CEO of the brain doesn't dominate everything. It's influenced by the limbic system or the amygdala, the emotional region of the brain. The entire brain is integrated. If you've got people on your team that are highly emotional and other people that are much more logical, always remember the logical person still has emotion and the emotional person still has logic. Right. I tend to see behavior that's fragmented. So how does that relate to how our brain is working? How can our brain be, as you say, operating as one, but our behavior, particularly when we feel under siege or have some fear, our behavior really goes and is more dominated by one side of the brain? A good example would be, for example, you're operating in fear, you're operating as a, and you have an employee who's operating in fear, who's who feels as though their entire family will be disrupted and they're going to lose everything if this pitch doesn't go well. And in that moment, their survival instincts have been triggered. Stress chemicals have been, are firing at a very high level. As a leader, what you can do is paint a bold, strong vision for that person to recognize that while their emotions and their stress chemicals are firing at a very high level, which is producing this kind of erratic, unstable behavior, if you marry that with a strong, bold vision and an embracing, empathetic, warm approach, that what that will do is trigger other parts of the brain to marry with this sort of fear region. It will create a response in the employee that will be much more balanced. But if you just kind of write them off as an employee who's erratic and neurotic, then you are basically giving up your responsibility as a leader in that moment by not triggering other parts of the brain to offset that fear region. The power of story invokes all of the brain. It gives you capacity as a leader to invoke every aspect of the human to draw them in. That's what I love so much about episode one and why these episodes are building on top of each other. Okay. And so that ties in next to the other, another principle, which is there is power in vision. And the idea, as you said, purpose and passion inspires. It ties the smallest of actions to the biggest of dreams. And the idea that if a leader can share their comprehensive exciting and detailed picture of the future, not where we are, because where we are might be quite fearful, not only to the employees, but even to the leaders, but it's where we're going, not where we are. And it's not just the statement, but it's this bigger picture that says, here's our culture. Here's how we're going to achieve our core capabilities. Here's where we've been, where we are, but where we're going. In some way, as you say, that becomes it's the art of seeing things that are invisible. 
and something yes. that then galvanizes not only the human resources, but also the financial resources towards this big end in mind. And for a leader, the value of that is oftentimes we think about the employees have fear, but I find more leaders have more fear than employees because there's a tremendous amount of responsibility that they place on their shoulders for making sure that everything goes all right. Because as you said, people are thinking, if this doesn't go all right, you know, my family is destroyed. And so the leader has that multiple effect in terms of the responsibility they feel. And so it actually, the vision is as much for the leader as it is for the people. And it becomes really the replacement of supervision because now we all know where we're going to. And I think about Nelson Mandela, someone who you've had a lot of time to spend with, and I had a lot of opportunity to observe when I lived in South Africa. And I think about his vision for the democracy of South Africa and how that was an amazing ability to envision a new place that was far from the current reality of the 27 years in Robben Island and how he wrote prolifically his vision down. And it, you know, it touched all stakeholders worldwide and the power that can still be felt by the vision that he had well beyond the end of apartheid in 1994. At the same time, I think it begins to reinforce that the vision is leader-led, and when the leader is not around, the vision is significantly compromised because it comes through and out of a person. It's not as though I can take your vision, Timothy, and try to lead with it, or you can take mine and lead with it because it, the vision is, comes through the leader. I just wonder what your reflections on, you know, the, the times you had the opportunity to observe and speak with Nelson Mandela in terms of how it relates to vision. There are two dimensions of my answer. The first dimension is he had a vision for himself. He had a vision for who he wanted to be as a leader. I mean, when he first came out of prison, he spoke on the Oprah Winfrey show about how angry he was at white people. And he says that I knew that if I did not dominate that feeling and get control of it, it would destroy me and it would also destroy my ability to lead. Mm. And this is one of the most powerful moments, I think, in his leadership journey that very few people talk about. He recognized that his emotions could destroy him first and that by getting control of it, we could go to the second dimension of his leadership potential, which was to translate harmony and peace with people that had oppressed him. And he would not have been able to do that had he not worked very diligently and courageously on his own emotions. And so his vision for a rainbow nation that incorporated, you know, all the official languages, more than 10 official languages, all of the, you know, the diversity of people that have descended on this country from around the world, from, you know, literally from Europe to other parts of Africa, was harmony and peace. But the fact of the matter is he knew that it was going to be very complex knowing that the legacy of this country was not peaceful by firstly exploring his own emotional strength and being able to translate that emotional strength to share with people. If we're going to achieve a vision of peace and harmony where all of us can live together with so much diversity, 
then we're all going to have to figure out a way to overcome our own emotional baggage. Absolutely. And that's EQ. That's the emotional intelligence that I think leaders are beginning to understand with a lot greater depth that you will only be as effective as a leader to the extent that you have the emotional intelligence. His ability to have that self-awareness, obviously, being 27 years in prison can give you a lot of time to think about a lot of things. Uh, you know, I think that was powerful and I think people haven't talked about it. And I think he really demonstrated the fourth principle, which is there's power in people, in all people. And that's what he said. He said, you know, there's the oppressors, there's the oppressed, there's all kinds of people. You know, we, we've got the rainbow nation, which means we've got a lot, not only differences in tribes and colors, but lots of different experiences. And it really what I saw him saying is that ordinary people can achieve extraordinary results. And that really powered, I think, the South African democracy and, and, and is the engine of this human-centric leadership model. Do you mind if I yes. bring in Mark real quick? Yes. You know, New Zealand is a country with barely over 4 million people. And this is one of his most powerful principles is like for New Zealand, which is such a small country, to be able to dominate the rugby landscape at such a high level, they had to dig deep and recognize the power of the people in the country. What's different about the people? If you look at the Aborigines, they used to play a sport that was similar to rugby, but quite different, but similar. What they did was channel the lessons of the people and what they had learned with this sort of westernized sport in rugby. And what that has enabled them to do is to create a masterful version of rugby. So he taught that to us, that instead of denouncing another person's sort of skill set, what they were doing was, what he was doing was integrating the different types of people and recognizing that there is extraordinary strength similar to what Mandela was doing. I relate to that because I think that that's the power. I mean, as you think about organizations and nations as well, we need the brain power of everybody to thrive and succeed. You know, you think about U.S., which, you know, considers itself one of the the global power, but it has a population that's not increasing at the rate of some other nations. We as a nation in our organizations only think that it's only the talented people or the bright people and everyone else is just here, we're, we're going to be eclipsed because it's like Mark says, we need all the people. And when you think about work, I mean, everybody has a yearning to make a contribution through their work because the average person spends most of their life at work, meaning the number of years you work is far greater than the number of years for which you are retired in quotes. And so people want to be a star in their role, whatever that role is. And we need all people. And so I think Mark had it right. It's the idea of how to integrate the people that you have towards the goal that you going towards. And I, and I just think that's, that's the power in the role of the leader is to unlock the power that's in people 
not just in their hands, but in their head and in their hearts. And that goes to the power of spirit. When you, I remember when that first began being introduced to leaders and organizations, and it's, it's a word that many are much more comfortable these days than they were when it was first beginning to be introduced. But it's the idea of esprit de corps, meaning the spirit of the body, which is a French word. It's a, it's a feeling of fellowship that leaders and teams have with each other. They have a, a understanding of each other, of their common goal. It's, it's a love. It's kind of, I would say, like the wind. You can feel it, but you can't see it. It's, it's like the fourth dimension that powers all high performing teams. And I'm, I'm just wondering, Timothy, have you ever experienced the spirit in a work environment? When human beings come together, you have this extraordinary sort of crowd effect. And what happens is that as human beings, we are wired to be tribal and communal and to engage. So our cells come alive. The primary reason why solitary confinement is so punishing is that you are deprived from the one of the greatest joys, and that is to be baptized by the spirit mm -hmm. of another human being, to be able to engage and indulge in someone else's generosity, someone else's spiritual warmth is part of what makes us human. And I really believe, and I see it all over the world, everywhere I've traveled, that when people come together for a common goal, you cannot stop people. When people descend together, when they are facing insurmountable odds, whether they're in Tokyo, Taipei, literally anywhere in the world, when a group of people led by an extraordinary visionary, female, male, trans, does not matter, when they are led by someone who believes in that spirit, <laughs> you cannot stop them. That, that's exactly right. And I was thinking when I think about spirit of Phil Jackson, the basketball coach, and I know both of us share an appreciation of basketball. And so spirit was is the thing that as a leader and as a coach, Phil talks about that that's what he focused on and that everybody had a role and even those who would consider themselves being sort of the star of the team had to begin to understand in this context of spirit and teaming that it's for the goal of the whole not the individual and so I think about two books that really I think give greater insight into this idea of spirit and how a leader can think about spirit and, and begin to invoke spirit into their leadership. And that's his books, 11 Rings and Sacred Hoops. And it's just, I think it's phenomenal. And he talks about the idea that people think, how could you have this spirit in something that's so competitive? But the idea is that you're not competing so much against someone else, but you're competing to get to the goal. And so it changes the whole nature of the experience. And it was expressed in a poem uh, by Edward Markham that I recently read that said, there is a destiny that makes us brothers. No one goes his way alone. All that we send into the lives of others comes back to our own. And I think that wow. is very, very true.
And it leads us to number six, which is there is power in process. And not just process, but a process that's predictable and repeatable so that you're focusing on the goals and the roles and a lot less on the personalities of the people. You know, how often do we find ourselves finding problems with people, at least in our mind as leaders? You know, we have, I think, as we discussed in episode one, the in-group and the out-group. But the reality is, again, if we need all the people, then it's not the people. It's usually comes down to what I expected someone to do. They didn't have the same expectation. The power of process is key to, again, this idea of building your business on people to get abundant results. I think Timothy, as you share and think about the brain, how can we, again, use our brain to help us with this process and systems-oriented thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to get into systems thinkings quite deeply in episode three, but I'll give you a bit of a taste now. The brain thinks in systems in order to operate efficiently in order to operate in a way to maximize effort, you know, in terms of building on your brain's capacity to be able to think in process, you go, every employee puts themselves into a system as it relates to the organization. People go, me plus this organization equals something. Me plus my leader equals something. The same way a person goes, five plus five equals 10. So when you're thinking about How do I lead? Remember that people want to know how do they fit in the system. Their brain is organized in formulas and systems in order to be able to internalize relational position inside of the organization. And so by going through process, the brain is following it. The brain is a pattern-making machine that's constantly looking for What is the next step? What is the next line in this agenda? And if you can lead with that in mind and knowing that people are looking for their place, they're looking for where they slot into the system. If you lead with that in mind, people will spend less energy. It'll produce less stress and less anxiety and they will embrace you and there'll be positive bonding chemicals towards you as a leader and you will find yourself feeling trusted galvanizing people. So that really does reinforce the idea of when a leader can lead with vision and have processes, it becomes effective even at the brain level because it actually is working in kind with the way the brain would more naturally operate. That's very interesting. Yeah. So that, that's, that's powerful. I think that's very powerful. And the seventh principle is there's power in dialogue and dialogue is in fact a process or a system. We often think about not dialogue, but we think about discussion, which is usually the idea of I have an idea. I have a point of view and I just need to get it on the table. But the dialogue portion really is, it's the creation of the shared meaning that again, as you say, if I can understand as a person where I fit, I'm more likely to now be more creative and apt to participate more. And so the dialogue and the idea is that 
in this model, whatever the question, the answer is dialogue. In other words, if you feel like we got the people at the table, we have the processes, we just need to talk about it. And in some way, I like to say we have two ears and one mouth, which means in dialogue, you should listen twice as much as you talk. And that's, again, also the opposite of discussion, where usually it's the pounding of ideas trying to come to some decision, where dialogue is really saying, let's create what doesn't exist. It's where the spirit comes in in some way, because you're really saying, presented with X challenge, let's think about that. Let's talk about that. And typically, if you you know you have a powerful dialogue, when you come out, with an idea that no one around the table had when you started talking, but that at the end, it just pops up organically and people wonder, how did we come up with that? But if you go back and listen to the dialogue, and as you say, the system thinking that went on, their brain actually produced it. But it's rare that leaders and more so leaders have the discipline to allow their teams to what I call spiral up. Mostly what leaders have the discipline to what I say is a fast spiral to the bottom, which is we need to get to a decision quickly. and We don't have a lot of time to think about it or talk about it. And the opposite, just thinking about the neuroscience is take the time to think about things from a system standpoint and your results automatically will be exponentially greater than when you force dialogue to come to a conclusion prematurely. I, w- I want to just say here quickly that the, I mean, this is, this goes back to ancient traditions. In South Africa, there's a term called an imbizo, I-M-B-I-Z-O, imbizo. And imbizo is called by traditional leaders for the purposes of dialogue. Because the deeper belief is that once we bring people together to engage in this sort of deep, rich, meaningful dialogue with diverse opinions, then that's how you get the best solution. And so I would like for people to leave this boardroom today thinking about the concept of calling an imbizo regularly or integrating it and integrating dialogue and perhaps teach your teams the concept of an imbizo. And as a leader, take responsibility for calling Embizos in order to see, to solicit the extraordinary value of process, of vision, everything that we've talked about today in these seven steps. I think this is a perfect way to start to conclude this conversation. And I'm so happy that you, you saved number seven for the last step. What you shared is exactly what I was so excited about when I began working in South Africa, is that many of these human-centric leadership principles that centered around people were embedded in the culture of South Africa, but I also think the African culture. And um, it works. As you say, they're time-tested. They produce spirit. It's the respect for oneself and an even greater respect for someone else. So I think as we begin to wrap up, a defining moment I'd like to share is that I think it's key is when you make the mindset shift from fear and scarcity to abundance. If you can unlock abundance in your brain, 
the other six principles will flow more naturally. And dialogue, though, is the key. Without it, it's difficult to have integration. It's difficult to realize that people are your power. It's difficult to create spirit. You really won't have the power of vision and and ultimately very impossible to have abundance. So the defining moment for me is the shift from fear to abundance. You know, when you think about how to, if you want to train your brain to think about the the sheer power of abundance, recognize that fear is natural and it is the brain sort of recognizing it needs to be alert. But in that moment, when you recognize that these seven steps are how you get to the place of overriding fear, it's through process, through believing, and doing that, you are channeling each area of the brain without having to think about it technically. You don't need to go and study neuroscience. All you have to do is physically embrace that these seven steps are triggering the executive region of the brain, the emotional region of the brain, the deeper instinctual uh, basic regions of the brain. And by doing that, you are getting all of your employee you are soliciting all of yourself in the process. I appreciate that, Tim. And I'd say the three takeaways from the show, and I think you'll agree, is again, the power of vision and story to inspire and unlock the potential in people. The second one is human behavior is unmatched when it's inspired and integrated with others towards a common goal. As you mentioned, no matter where on the world map you drop in, human spirit is moving in a direction, it's going to get there. The third takeaway is how you think impacts the results you can achieve. Leaders ignite a fire in people and managers ignite a fire under people. And so the question is, which do you aspire to be? That is the question of this episode of Anatomy of a Leader. What I appreciate so much about your philosophy, uh, Raquel, and I've noticed that from the first time we met, is you really believe in the depths of human nature. And I know you've studied psychology and you understand human behavior at a very high level. What I really am embracing about this process along with you is that it's almost as though you understand neuroscience better than me. And I think that's where we meet in this conversation is that your processes, your thinking really does solicit every aspect of what, what the brain is wired to do. I'm grateful that we're able to take this journey together and learn ourselves while we are in this boardroom with the leader. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to the anatomy of a leader. It means the world to us. Look out for episode three in the next part of the series as we go deeper and look at neuroleadership and decision making. Thank you for listening to Episode 2, Human-Centric Leadership, Power of the People. Don't miss the next episode, Neuroleadership, Decision-Making Hacks. Please share this episode and the series with leaders you know who want to make a difference in the world they touch. Also, please leave a comment and rate the episode. To learn more about Raquel and Timothy, visit RadicalAbundantMindset.com and TimothyMaurice.com. And a very special thank you to our production partner, Joyla Reese Johnson at JoylaReeseJohnson.com.